Welcome to the Muddy Waters of Freedom with your hosts, Matt Wright and Mohammed Shaker. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to the Vanguard for M- Matt. <laughs> Whoops. Hang on. Was that you? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, for <laughs> Mohammed Shaker, I am Matt Wright, and together we are traversing the muddied waters of freedom. What's going on, buddy? Hello, Matt. How are you doing today? I am okay. I actually have been to the gym today already, and I've eaten. I did. I went to the gym this morning. I could show you a picture if you want the gym selfie. Well, if you don't post about going going to the gym on social media, did you really go? Did it really exist? Yeah. Yeah. No, it didn't. (laughs) Um, But I did send a gym selfie to somebody, so there is evidence that it actually happened. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah. So it's going to be a great show today. It is going to be a great show today. Would you like to introduce our guest? Sure. Excellent. So a lot of people are very excited to see you on today, sir. Um, We have the president of the Mises Institute out of Auburn, Alabama, right outside the school, Jeff Deist. How are you doing today? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Okay, good. Yeah, we're doing all right, sir. How about yourself? Yeah, doing really well. Thanks for taking some uh, time out of your Saturday to join us for uh, for an hour of Liberty Fun. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, sir? Well, uh, I, for libertarian purposes anyway, I've been uh, – <laughs> I, I never went through the, the liberal or conservative phase. Um, the, the first time I could vote was 1988. Uh, which was the second Reagan election. Um, and fortunately, I had a father who happened to have a copy of The Road to Serfdom by Friedrich Hayek laying around the house somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I had an older brother who was reading Reason Magazine, if you can believe that. Wow. <laughs> in, the, in the 1980s, when Reason Magazine was a lot younger, the, the print version of Reason Magazine. Yeah. Um, and so as a result... Uh, I heard about this idea called libertarianism. I got a little bit involved with the uh, Libertarian Party in California. And uh, so uh, in 1988, I went and saw Ron Paul at a hotel in Orange County and uh, have more or less considered myself a a libertarian ever since. So I didn't uh, I don't come from a a left or right background per se. Uh, And really, I just kept in touch with Ron Paul over the years Knew him a little bit. I've known him personally for a long time. Knew, know his wife Carol real well, mm-hmm. and uh, just through coincidences, circumstances, I ended up working in his congressional office. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. And so that's how I came to know Lou Rockwell, and ultimately how I came to be talking to you today at the Mises Institute. So it's uh, wasn't something I planned. It's just something that happened. Yeah. So who came before you? Who was the president? Who's who was the president of the institute before you? And how did you land this? Well, Lou Rockwell is the founder yes. and the president. Um, my immediate predecessor, his name is Doug French. He he is a, uh, a former banker. He also is, is really involved in the real estate market. He blogs uh, at a site called Doug in Vegas because he lives in Las Vegas now. 
so at any rate, um, I've been here about a uh, little over three years now, so it's going by quick. And uh, it's kind of a strange, strange job in the sense that we're, uh, we're promoting something and we're pursuing something that uh, is not completely mainstream, but it's growing. Um, and so we're small, but I think our impact is as large as a lot of organizations that are much bigger and much better funded than us. Yeah, such as Cato, for example. Well, we're we're a lot smaller than most of the Beltway organizations you could name. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there are huge shops like Heritage and AEI and Brookings that bring in tens of millions of dollars a year, and then there's smaller shops like ours. So it's uh, you know one of the great things about the digital age is that it has really, really evened the playing field. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, the, we now have a platform uh, for spreading information that's completely unlike 30 years ago. And, um, it, you know, it's it's made the advantage that or, or mainstream outlets like the New York Times have uh, a much smaller advantage. It's really a new world. And uh, there's a certain amount of money you need to have to compete but having a lot more money is no longer the advantage it once was. And I think that's true of politics as well. Um, a, a candidate can use Facebook or Twitter skillfully, almost free, and uh, and do things that in the past required physical door knocking or, or a physical contribution. So, uh, I, you know, this is something that liberty-minded people should be excited about, that, yeah. that the digital age has, has made information instantaneous and almost free. So what is your uh, educational background? Well, uh, I'm a lawyer. I was uh, a lawyer for many, many years and then went to work for Ron uh, and then went back to lawyering and uh, came to work here for Lou Rockwell and the uh, Mises Institute. I'm not an academic. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, my job is to promote academics. I'm I'm a support staff, so to speak, for, for academics, both dead and alive. Mm-hmm. So it, it's my job to promote their work. And uh, th- that's what we, we try to do every day and make a difference. Yeah, so it's interesting you're talking about um, the funding that you get for the Mises Institute. I remembered uh, I was not at Mises University this year, but I was uh, last year. Um, and I remembered there you guys had donors in the Middle East out of all places, which really surprised me because uh, I did not think that there were people such as myself, especially living over there, that would agree with uh, small governments, no government ideas, limited markets, and all that. How did you guys go about selling this this limited market idea and getting funding from that overseas in places where it's definitely even more fringe than it is in the United States to talk about libertarianism? Well, we have a few individual donors who happen to live in the Middle East in Dubai and Bahrain and a couple of other places. They're just individuals like anyone else. Um, There's actually a really interesting history behind uh, business and capitalism in Islam. Obviously, Islam is a a very broad topic, so we can't we can't sort of speak of one view of business or capital capitalism or markets within Islam. But there is a strain of of pro-business thought within Islam. And and, uh, uh, one of our supporters in particular, uh, Yusuf Amawayed, has done some podcasts with Lou Rockwell on this very subject. So uh, people look. People all over the world are interested in these ideas for a very simple reason. They're not spoiled like we are in the West. Right. <laughs> you talk to people in China and the Middle East, 
and they want to have iPhones. They want to have all the material comforts and wealth that, that in the West we just take for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're kind of jaded here. We're, I, I mean, here we are talking about Occupy Wall Street and Bernie Sanders and, and socialism, uh, you know, things that have been completely debunked, whereas the East – which we used to think of as the old world, mm-hmm. is far more interested in capitalism and markets and reading Hayek and Mises and Rothbard because they've essentially had a boot on their neck for so long that, that they're growing like crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, you could look at a you could look at a at a six year old kid and say, oh, my gosh, look how much he's growing every year. That, that's that's really the case in China and the mm-hmm. Middle East. So yeah. it, it's it's interesting. It's also a bit sad that we become jaded about liberty in the West mm-hmm. and even indifferent towards it and even hostile towards it when there's so much interest in the East because uh, people who have lived uh, in, in countries that weren't capitalist um, are a little more uh, optimistic about what it brings. Yeah. yeah. No, that's – yeah, that's actually very true. Um, so, well, speaking about that, actually, um, let's go right into the Hans – uh, <laughs> let's go right into the hot yeah, speed. Uh, I mean, the, Facebook blew up this week with libertarians seeming to just jump on two separate sides, and it was either you loved the Han speech or you hated the Han speech. I right. was on, I was on the I loved the Han speech. I thought it was great. I thought it was fantastic. I thought he did a great job, and I I sent that video. I don't like. Okay, so I grew up in a conservative household. When I first learned about libertarianism. Um, I took like the world's smallest political test and it said, Oh, you're a libertarian. And I said, dad, what's a libertarian? He goes, Oh, it's, you're basically a Republican. And I went, Oh, okay. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, okay, sure. And then I started doing more research on it and I was like, no, I'm not. This makes no sense. Okay. Got it. And I actually sent that to him and I was like, dad, you're going to agree with like, 80% 80% of what he's going to say in this hour long speech. And that other 20% just, you know, try to learn from it, please. <laughs> and I don't know if he's watched it yet or not, but I thought it was a great speech, but it seems as though liber- like libertarians are just completely divided on this. And I wanted to get your take on it and what you thought and, um, where, where the divide is coming from is what I'm really kind of concerned about and like what we can do to help bring the Libertarian Party together. Well, I don't think libertarians per se are divided on the state. I think libertarians like anybody else have their own particular cultural preferences. And this tends to shake out as seemingly left or right. But it doesn't really need to be that way. In other words, if we're serious about significantly reducing or eliminating the role of the state in society, then whatever follows from that culturally, we should all be okay with. I certainly um, would, would be okay with any kind of social arrangements that arise in a in a hoppy and uh, private society. And I think people who have either left or right cultural preferences uh, either egalitarian or traditional, we might say, as broad terms, uh, should be fine with this. Uh, the, the idea is that right now what makes us all hostile to one another in society is that the fact that we're yoked together 
involuntarily by this thing we call the state. Mm-hmm. And in in very large uh, heterogeneous states like the United States with 320 million people, that's a recipe for anger and and division. It's it's less a recipe for anger and division in Liechtenstein or some tiny place like that mm-hmm. where you're not hurting 320 million people uh, uh, under uh, one top-down policy. So uh, I think the concept is that smaller is better and that private is best. Um, I mm-hmm. don't think I don't think hop, a Hoppian society would be free of all trouble or unhappiness um, by any stretch. But you guys are closer to this than me on, on social media. When you say that it's caused a huge riff or divide, mm-hmm. um, you, you'll have to tell me a little bit more what you what you mean. Well, you've got a lot of people were saying that they thought the uh, that the hop speech was awful and. <laughs> I mean that that is literally what the posts were Which saying. Is, yeah, it's yeah. kind of broad. Yeah, they're just like it's awful, and then there would be really long four hundred comment discussions that I wasn't going to go through each and every comment. But uh, essentially, what it seems as though is that they many of them were saying that they felt as though Hop was sort of a, for lack of any better term, a precursor to the alt right. Like he doesn't actually care about the minorities. Um, and the way that I the way that I heard what he was saying personally is that if I have 500 acres of land and I want to live with like-minded people and I was selling off my acres of land to people I wanted to live next to and then they didn't want to live by the what con- we, yeah the rules or the contract right the rules or the contract that we have all agreed on we wouldn't like force them out we wouldn't like force them out. we would just like kind of publicly ostracize them until they left. And I was like, yeah, that sounds absolutely wonderful to me. That sounds great. Um, but they were saying, no, that's just ways to keep people who are exactly alike together. Okay. Well, look, I, I don't think Hoppe is the precursor to the alt-right because the alt-right is the statist view that, that relies upon na- either nationalism or something further than that to – engineer society and and libertarians and certainly anarchists like Hoppe uh, would eliminate state power entirely. So this idea that Hoppe is some sort of gateway drug <laughs> to the alt-right is, is interesting to me, and I think it's false. And I think that's part of what he disabused in his talk. He particularly pointed out some, some strong differences between libertarianism and, and alt-right thinking. But But I think it's funny that you bring up this idea of he wouldn't care about the minority. This is this is this is great because mm-hmm. here we've got Hoppe, a German married to a Turk, living in Istanbul, which is a ninety nine point eight percent Muslim majority country. Mm-hmm. So if anybody's a minority these days, it's Hans Hoppe <laughs> in Turkey. I um, did not know this. Yeah, That's I, awesome. I, I did not know that yeah. about him. That's... And, and and this is this is this is quite interesting to me. I, I'd also like to know about some of the leafy white zip codes uh, of the professors <laughs> who criticize him. Because I have a feeling uh, that these uh, colleges at which they teach are not in the hood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, look, uh, I think a lot of libertarians don't like Hoppe because they think he's harsh and because they think his language or his approach is not a Big Ten idea. Um 
and they think that libertarian is better sold with a softer or even an egalitarian approach. I get all that. It hasn't worked too well. I, I don't think being Democrat light or Republican light is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a bigger question when it comes to selling libertarianism, when it comes to uh, Hoppe. And, and that question is, are we trying to sell something political? And I think a lot of libertarians would say, yes, we are. And, and Hoppe would say, no, we're not. I agree, I agree with no. I, I, I think that if we look at the world today, every aspect of human life is becoming more and more decentralized. Yes. Except government. In other words, work life, family life, uh, business life, industries – uh, all, all of this is becoming just in time, decentralized, uh, spontaneous, with diffuse knowledge spread throughout the economy. Obviously, the digital age has accelerated this. It, it, it's only government where we see bigger and bigger and bigger. People mm. want the EU instead of Europe. They want the UN in, instead of countries. They want the WTO. They want uh, the World Bank. They want the IMF. So, so governance is the only part of human life that's going in the wrong direction, that's going in the centralized direction. And I think it's, it's, it, it's a bad idea for libertarians to promote universalism or globalism when it comes to political arrangements. Certainly we have universal principles mm-hmm. uh, re- regarding uh, human nature, regarding human flourishing and property rights and self-ownership. Those are certainly universal concepts, but universal political arrangements – I think it is a <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about an uphill battle. Um, we, we can't even get agreement within, uh, you know, amongst libertarians. How are we supposed to get a 51 percent electorate in the United States, which is a fairly a fairly I mean, r- compared to the rest of the world, libertarian thought flourishes here. Mm-hmm. And, and a 51 percent electorate in the United States basically means about 70 million folks. Mm-hmm. Um you know, is that is that our goal or, or should our goal be to promote decentralization, to promote subsidiarity and to try to push down um, a concept that even the left has embraced since Trump won, which is federalism? Yes. Which is the idea that, um, you know, we, we shouldn't we should we shouldn't all be yoked. We shouldn't all be terrified of what some congressman or senator from another state is going to vote on um, for, for the same reason that we're, we're you know, we, we don't worry about the French, that we don't have a culture war with the French. The French look down on Americans as sort of the ugly tourist and the uncouth lout walking around Europe in his cargo shorts. <laughs> and the and Americans look down on the French as these kind of hoity-toity sophisticates Mm-hmm. Um, but but we're friendly with the French. We don't have a culture war with the French because we're not politically yoked with them. Mm-hmm. They, who, you know who uh, Macron becoming uh, Prime Minister of France doesn't really affect us. And and this is how people in the within the United States ought to look at one another. I think it would be. Um, I think it's the only way to ratchet down the ugliness that's out there between the alt right and Antifa. And, and I think it's the most realistic path for, for libertarians. Um, so I'm not I'm not a universalist when it comes to political arrangements. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, funny enough, I agree with that because I think it was during the Tom Woods show that we were all at where 
uh, somebody made the comment, it might have even been Tom, uh, where somebody said most of our in- everyday interactions, all of our interactions are all anarchist. There is no government involvement in almost anything we do until we stumble into the government for something we ha- actually have to do. Yeah. Like, you know, getting your driver's licenses or whatever. I was going to say that was either Tom or Michael. Yeah. Michael Malice. Okay, yeah. For or, or anybody my- who wasn't yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and I actually wanted to make another quick point about something you had said earlier about um, the Far East being the old world and how liberty is kind of looked down upon uh, a little too often in the West. It's funny enough you say that. I agree. Um, one of the things that honestly gets a chuckle out of me is – so I like – I don't like broad statements, so I don't like the phrase – western civilization for some very specific reasons so a lot of alt writers will say we must save western civilization western civilization is perfect blah 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 yet i mean feminism especially like this third wave fem uh you know uh the, the new millennial feminism yeah, yeah new feminism socialism communism also came from from the west these are all western ideas that are still terrorizing parts of the world that they didn't come from you know, they, they, they didn't have any of this stuff over there, and now they do because of people like Marx and and uh, Engels and all that. Um, so, uh, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on this whole Western civilization thing? Do we just worry about, specific, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 almost a useless term, and uh, you know, a lot of terrible things have come out of Germany. I might add, <laughs> uh, and I can say that with German ancestry. Well, welfare, w- welfareism. Uh, David Hasselhoff. These are the worst intellectuals ever. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> except for Hoppe, of course, he's a good intellectual. <laughs> right. Um, look, you know, I, I don't, I don't think a hundred years ago people would have used that term. I would think they, they would look at a German and an Italian as two radically different things mm-hmm. or, or the or the you know the relative cultures of those two places but I, I understand what people mean by it you know western civilization the idea we could go back to the magna carta for example and say that the idea that um humans don't just exist to serve the state mm-hmm. um which is not exclusively western but it's flourished uh more strongly in the West. Uh, you know, I, I understand that. I do think the uh, Enlightenment was a good thing. Um, I, I think that Western civilization, as a very broad term, has been uh, preferable. It certainly produced more material comfort. Um, it's also produced some horrific world wars, uh, and it's produced the only country to use nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, it's a mixed bag, but, um, you know, I'm not a culture warrior. I think uh, I, I think you get the state out of the way as much as you can. And I think, A, people improve because the state tends to tamp down a lot of our better instincts and, and, and our more charitable impulses. And B, uh, culture sorts itself out in the marketplace, uh, much like products do. Um, so I don't think culture is something that has to be defended or promoted. I think culture is something that emerges. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking now of the speech again, there was one thing that really – that I needed clarification on because um, he said something that, that did sort of make sense to me. I just didn't understand how 
how to, how that was i don't know how to explain this morally correct i guess but he was talking about how having you know people espouse socialist and communist views would would obviously lead to people taking our stuff from us and that we should be able to forcibly remove those people um it didn't sound like he it, it didn't sound like the whole 500 acres argument i think it was a different part of this uh, yeah it was a different and, yeah and that's why I was, I was really confused about that um should we not win our ideas uh without force like sh- show that our ideas are better without removing people or or what and this is probably well, a I question think... that a lot of people are wondering anyways because they, they see all the memes yeah i think hoppo was talking about in a private society where people have agreed to a set of terms if they begin to modify or reject or uh, breach those terms, then it's certainly the mechanism is to ask them to leave the community. There's no question about that. I think mm-hmm. I think what you're talking about is is before we arrive at that sort of situation, let's say in, in present day America, um, I, I don't think we have any cause to physically aggress <laughs> against people <laughs> because they happen to be a communist or a socialist or something. I, I think that... Uh, um, we have to apply the same concept of Rothbardian self-defense mm-hmm. as the only justification for force as as, as uh, we, we would in any other situation. Would you mind explaining that for our viewers, Rothbardian self-defense? Well, and I don't want to suggest that it, of course. That it originated with Murray Rothbard. It, it really originated with, with Thomas Aquinas and some Catholic scholars in the – what so we natural could broadly law? – what we could broadly call just war doctrine, okay. um, which if you sort of unravel that and unpeel it down to the individual level, says that you know force is only justified uh, in, in matters of self-defense. So we can quibble about defining defense of oneself and defining defense of one's loved ones and whether that would extend to property. Can, is it okay to shoot some guy who's trying to steal your car but not – harm you physically from 50 yards away, mm-hmm. you know, that becomes a, a question of proportionality uh, and, and situationalism. But, uh, you know, I, th- I think in general, uh, there's a strong Rothbardian concept in, in libertarianism that says force is justified against people only in self-defense. So um, I think when you start talking about anticipatory self-defense, that's a, a very slippery slope. Okay. Yeah. Um, I have a, uh, some questions for you from some of our viewers. Uh, Josh Hansen would like to know, how do you stay so principled despite attacks by other libertarian organizations? Uh, and also, do you have any funny experiences working at the Mises Institute? Well, I don't know exactly how to answer that uh, it's it's not so much a matter of principle as, as it is a matter of trying to promote the ideas of other people who happen to be principled or apply principles in their work uh, most of us no offense to you two mm-hmm. i'll only speak about myself most mm-hmm. of us are are what we could comfortably call secondhand dealers in ideas right? <laughs> we're, we're not we're not originators mm-hmm. uh, we we don't come up with with whole new areas of thought, or even advance existing areas of thought. Uh, that's that's the job of intellectuals and academics who, at least speaking for myself, are smarter than me. Uh, so our, our job is to take those ideas and advance them. Um, and I, I think the, the most principled way to do that is 
is simply to be honest and to understand that uh, honest academic work, honest intellectual work moves forward with a North Star of truth rather than um, starting to have some sort of predetermined outcome, which I'm afraid is what plagues mainstream academia today. Uh Uh, Things you can't say, conclusions you can't reach. So, uh, but, you know, working in the Mises Institute is a, is a lot like working for Ron Paul. I, it, I've, I've had the opportunity to meet some incredible people over the years. And that's, that's what I really cherish is, um, meeting some, uh, you know, meeting some in- incredible people, uh, including, uh, meeting Murray Rothbard very briefly in about 1992 or thereabouts when he was uh, teaching at UNLV. I drove up to Las Vegas from San Diego and sat in on one of his classes one evening with a friend of mine. So, um, you know, it's been, uh, it, it's been great b- being able to know Ron Paul and know Lou Rockwell and know Hans Hoppe a bit and, and meet Murray Rothbard and, uh, some people like Jim Grant and, uh, Kane, Glenn Jacobs. So that's, that to me is, the, uh, that's, that's a, uh, a perk that goes beyond any salary. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have a, a very regular listener and, uh, he is in on a constant debate that Muhammad and I have, um, <laughs> And he wanted to know, are you a dog person or a cat person? <laughs> well, I'm neither. My kids want a dog, but... Uh, uh, We're going to count that as dog person? I'll take it right now. We, we don't even have to go any... Definitely we... <laughs> definitely grew up as a dog person. There you go. Perfect. Oh, oh, you were wrong. <laughs> uh, now, you, Tho told me about this before I met you, uh, and I guess a few people in the movement know about this. Um, you love heavy metal. What what are your favorite heavy metal bands? <laughs> wow. Well, I, look, um, I, I don't. I, you know, I'm a lot older than you guys. I don't really keep up. Probably not. Um, you're probably close to the guy to my left here, actually. Um, I'm. Uh, I mean, I'm, I I listen. I, I guess out of nostalgia, I listen to a lot of Motorhead these days, simply because Lemmy's gone. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I it, growing up as a kid, I I was listening to. Stuff like Black Flag and Dead Kennedys. Um, and then in the late 80s, probably before you guys were born, there was a big crossover movement where um, bands like DRI and the Cro-Mags started to become a lot slower and heavier. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was the stuff I listened to. But now I listen to, I don't know, now I listen to NPR in my car. So right. I, I, think, I think you're asking, you're asking the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. But if I had to throw something on in the gym or whatever, it'd probably be Motorhead. Okay. Uh, do you think? I mean, do you think that heavy metal would be a a good way? I guess to. I mean, you know Eric July, right? And a lot of their the lyrics in their songs are they are very, very, very political. I guess uh, or free market oriented. Um, I think heavy metal might be one of the best ways to actually sp- spread the ideas of liberty. I mean, the the whole point of heavy metal is to sort of rebel against what is normal most most liberal i mean most metalheads happen to be more right-leaning and a lot of them typically end up being libertarian um so compared to punk rock anyways because punk ends up being a lot more leftist socialist blah blah oh, yeah. blah, blah, blah um the, the 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 punk rock movement that i was big into um you know sex pistols clash all that they were all against the state but they wanted like communism at the same time which i never really got but i just love listening to them yeah so i didn't care yeah well 
you got to hand it to the left. They do such a good job with culture. Look at a band like Rage Against the Machine with their nonsense. Right. Uh, you know, and, and I have heard a criticism of, of metal generally, which echoes the criticisms we hear about the gaming world with this. It's all white males. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it really it, it really does speak to this idea. You got to you got to capture culture. And that's, you know, the Mises Institute is really about Austrian economics and, and libertarian theory. But th- there's a lot of other things that other people could be doing uh, to to promote things culturally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you know, look at the Emmys, look at the Grammys, look at the MTV Music Awards, look at uh, look at the literary world, look at the. You know, almost all of these are completely controlled by the left. So it's it's no coincidence that the teenage girl who's listening to Taylor Swift all day is more influenced in, uh, by that than her her mom's nagging her about whatever. Um, so, you know, the point is the stuff that gets into your head when you're young tends to stay there. And uh, we don't do a very good job of getting liberty into young people's heads uh, because they're in government schools uh, getting something very different. You have made me so happy on this interview so far. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Muhammad is sitting here giggling like an idiot because he's the biggest Taylor Swift fan in the world. <laughs> Let's just move on from that part. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so uh, a name you might be familiar with, Nathan Keeble. Uh He says, do you believe that Academia is the best way to influence public opinion for Austro-Libertarian thoughts. And if not, what what is the best way to influence Austro-Libertarian thoughts? Short answer is no. Uh, th- this was this was the Hayekian top-down model. The the notion of, from Friedrich Hayek that we develop libertarian ideas within academia that trickles down to opinion makers in the media. And then that finally trickles down to the the masses in the mainstream. And uh, Murray Rothbard pointed out that the problem with this idea of of trying to affect change within academia is that it ignores uh, incentives. Academics often have a vested interest, namely their paycheck, Mm -hmm. in maintaining the status quo and Right now, amongst Western universities, the status quo is is highly progressive left. And so to get to get fame and notoriety and to get published and to get tenure and to move up in academia, you're generally going to mimic um, what what works, the the, the narrative. So part part of the problem with the Hayekian model was that it it ignores the fact that academics aren't these objective, new, morally neutral actors are self-interested. Mm-hmm. And if you want to go into academia, guys, and you want to get a PhD and teach whatever, it's in your self-interest to be a lefty. Mm-hmm. That's that's just the reality today in the West, and there's no there's no denying that. So I, I'm a big believer in a bottom-up strategy. Rothbard got a lot of heat about this because uh, the idea that he was a populist, at least towards the end of his life, and 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 I disagree. First of all, I think populism. Is is not really an ideology per se. It's more of a tactic. Mm-hmm. You can you can imbue populism with whatever you like. And for for example, Ron Paul did a, a fantastic job of using populism in two different ways. One was get out of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. That was a 
populist message and it resonated. The other was end the Fed. Mm -hmm. Yes. Again, a, a populist message. People, your average guy or gal on the street doesn't really understand how the, the Fed operates mechanically. Hey, hey, that's that's no big crime. Neither do most monetary economists, quite frankly. But nonetheless, it resonated as a message. And, and, and let's not forget that when we're talking about populism as a strategy versus a top-down top academia-type strategy, um, there, there's nothing wrong with being anti-elite when elites get that way and stay that way through their cozy relationship with the state. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot – I won't say all. There are certainly, uh, there's certainly a meritocracy of sorts in America, and there are certainly elites – financial and otherwise in America who have earned it. But there's an awful lot of them who got who, who, who obtained elite status through the Fed and, and its unbelievable run ups in the in the equities markets. In, in other words, gaming, gaming what the Fed does or gaming what the state does. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the, the idea that um, we shouldn't be attacking elites because that's somehow anti-intellectual. It is is dead wrong. Um, we absolutely should be attacking elites with a populist message because um, most elites are state connected. Yes. Yes. Um, going on the Fed, I got into a debate yesterday. Um, I, I don't know if you're into cryptocurrency at all, um, but somebody posted uh, that Bitcoin went up $700 two days ago, I think. Whenever that was, yeah. which that was awesome. God bless that for happening. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, this guy commented and goes, Bitcoin is, uh, it's a scam. It is, uh, it's a collectible, like a mint Yoda doll from the seventies that your parents forgot to give you um, and stuff like that. And I, I began, he was like, it's not a currency. And I was arguing with him and I said, of course it's a currency. People can use it to make transactions. That makes it a currency. He said, no, it's not a currency because it's not run by the government. The government needs to be able to hold on, like be in charge of the currency in order to inflate and deflate as necessary. And we went back and forth for a while, but mm. uh, I was wondering what your opinion was on one, what the definition of a currency is and two, uh, should the state be inflating and deflating the current, the, the, the quote unquote <laughs> national currency just because they feel that they need to? Isn't it interesting that this guy thinks that, that only states can issue and back currencies? I guess he's never heard of Spanish galleons that they found, uh, you know, lying at the bottom of the sea on some wreck in some chest full of, uh, full of uh, gold and jewels. But, uh, Look, I, this is a 20th century attitude. It, it, it's very common. And whether cryptos are a currency is is very simple. That's for the market to decide. The, the, the degree of moneyness of any commodity uh, even is up to the marketplace to decide. So there's some – I don't know what the magic moment is, but there's some there's some point at which Bitcoin or another crypto is widely accepted enough for, for – for day-to-day -day transactional stuff, not just as some sort of investment that you buy, um, th there's a point at which you say, "Yeah, it's a currency," and it's it's not really. I mean, that that magic moment doesn't really interest me. I, I'm more interested in the technology um, and, and what blockchain can do in terms of 
acting as a trust agent, taking out the, the middleman and taking out the need for a lot of lawyers and government offices to do things like uh, attest to the good title of a piece of property before you sell your house or, uh, you know, attest a that the money is there uh, in an escrow type transaction for someone buying a business. I, I think it, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating technology. The sky's the limit. Mm -hmm. And, but if you, you know, um, whether something is money or the degree to which it's the degree of its moneyness is, is up to the market to decide. It's, it's not any individual's place to proclaim it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, also, so the, the admins of Liberty Memes say hello to you. They're big fans. <laughs> uh, one of our, uh, one of our viewers, Karen Smith, wants to know. So in Florida, we have a big issue with, uh, the medical marijuana, uh, racketeering with the, you know, with the government. Mm. It's not exactly the biggest, it's not exactly the free market solution it was supposed to be. No, it's def it's pretty much a monopoly. Yeah, yeah. What what is what is the best way for Floridians to go about fighting that or influencing a way around that? Well, they have to do. You state capital is Tallahassee, correct? Yes. yes. They have to turn their backs on Tallahassee the same way medical marijuana states turn their backs on Washington D.C. In, in other words, decriminalization of at least medical marijuana is one of the great. Uh, Irish democracy stories of the last 10 or 15 years. The, the, the federal law basically preempts state medical marijuana laws. Mm -hmm. Okay. But states did it anyway. And guess what? The feds didn't send in a bunch of armed SWAT agents. Um, it, 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 the states just shrugged and said, you know what? We can no longer deal with marijuana as a criminal issue with all the unfunded liabilities of having to put everybody in jail because we pull them over for a speeding ticket and they've got a couple joints in their ashtray. The states just began to shrug and say, no mas, we can't handle this and we're going to do something about it. And the Fed said, no, 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 you can't. Federal law preempts this. Mm -hmm. And the state said, well, we're going to do it anyway. And they did it. And Obama, to his credit, one of the, one of the best things Obama didn't do mm -hmm was he didn't go crazy and send in the federales to Colorado or to Oakland or anywhere else. And now medical marijuana has a foothold and it's gaining momentum. Um, I was actually just in Orlando a couple of weeks ago and I saw a, a couple of uh, medical marijuana shops near a restaurant. Um, and now it, it's something that the feds are probably not going to be able to squash. Um, so – you know, it, it, it's really an amazing libertarian story mm -hmm. uh, that didn't require political action, at the, national political action. It didn't require, um, you know, you, even 51 percent electorate necessarily anywhere. It, it's 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 a story that fascinates me. And it's such a huge success story that libertarians don't talk about sometimes. I think it's it's the it's absolutely the model for which. Uh, libertarians should apply uh, gun laws or, or anything else that interests them. It, it was a form of nullification mm -hmm. that took place in broad daylight right under our noses. And, and here we have – now, I wasn't aware – You know, I, I'm sure the state of Florida tries to cartelize it and get tax revenue. Yes, and this absolutely. And that. So now, now you've got a new fight on your hands. But it's still, it's still a big deal, and, and I hope 
I hope that it works out for you guys. Yeah, same here. Yeah. Um, I just lost my train. I thought I was, <laughs> was going to say. Um, <laughs> oh, yes, I remember. So in your experience so far at the Mises Institute, you know, you're all about influencing and being a secondhand seller of philosophies and ideas. What has what has been the goal of Mises University and have you been meeting that goal? Well, the goal is to bring young people from around the world here and uh, undo any economics they might have been taught and uh, re- reinstall some new software and uh, get get them thinking uh, the, the right way about economics as the, the study of what humans actually do that has some uh, a priori assumptions behind it, that has some deductive reasoning involved, and uh, begin to understand money and banking and uh, the uh, methodology of economics and how interest rates arise and, and a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. But 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 more than that, it's really to energize them and, and give them a new grounding in, in the, really the scholarship, the ideas of liberty, and, and hopefully send them back to their school or back to their uh, their business or into their careers or Wall Street or Silicon Valley or, or academia, wherever they choose to go, um, w- with a new perspective. And, and we certainly have had a lot of people tell us over the years that Mises University changed our lives, changed my life. And that's the that's I have to take comfort in that. In other words, we have to look at individual successes <laughs> um, and say that, we, you know, we want those people to be out there uh, changing the world because it really is individuals mm-hmm. who, who change the world more so than groups. So, uh, you know, we're, we're we're doing that as one of our number one. Uh, forms of outreach. We we hope to expand it into a couple of new weeks that are going to be held in different parts of the country. So, if, if anyone's listening, you haven't been to Mises, you you ought to apply. We've gotten a lot more early applications, um, and, and you don't have to be an undergraduate student. We have sometimes we have a a truck driver who listens to our podcasts all day while he or she drives. Sometimes we have a housewife who just in, in the middle of life decided that she had some deficiencies in her own knowledge uh, of education. Um, sometimes we have a retiree who, who just wants to learn more. But uh, if you come to Mises U, you, you'll definitely have a blast. And it doesn't cost you anything. It, it's it, We don't charge for it. And it's in July. You get to experience Auburn in July, mm-hmm. which is uh, kind of like Tampa in July. If you know mm-hmm. what I mean. I was going to say, it's going <laughs> to... I left Nashville and I came to Tampa. So Auburn in July, I think I can pretty much wrap my head around what that would be like. It's going to be hot and it's going to be muggy. Got it. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's actually funny enough you say that. Uh, during one of my lectures, uh, I don't remember whose lecture it was. Um, maybe it was David Gordon. Uh, there was a 77-year-old man that was sitting there. He, he And he told me a story. He was longtime conservative. Uh, believed in the government, blah, blah, blah. I don't remember his story about how he heard about the Mises Institute, but there legitimately was a 77-year-old man there in the audience with me sitting there for that whole week, which I thought was beautiful. And it did change my life too, actually. I mean, I did leave, <laughs> I did spend a couple hundred bucks on books, so that, that's, that's some kind of change. <laughs> um, uh, speaking of current events, um, What's your thoughts on uh, this whole 
Rand Paul, Donald Trump, uh, the healthcare executive order, the healthcare executive order, uh, cause there's been a lot of people discussing if people on the, you know, people always talk about how we were not okay with, um, President Obama passing mm-hmm. executive orders all the time. And, and is it okay to basically be okay with President Trump doing the same thing to basically roll back some of these government regulations mm-hmm. and laws? Um, also, does that even keep it safe? Because, I mean, the next president can just write, a, write away with a pen, undo what President Trump just did. Mm-hmm. Well, I... I... You know, I haven't followed it that closely. I, I do agree with Senator Paul that undoing legislation by executive order is qualitatively different than enacting mm-hmm. legislation by executive order. I, I do think those are two different things. Um, if you, There's a guy named Lewis Fisher who worked for years and years at the Library of Congress. If you Google Lewis Fisher Library of Congress, you will find that he is an absolute master at understanding executive authority and how presidents exceed it and what uh, executive orders mean and when they're illegal. Um, So, look, I I think I'd rather look at the bigger picture here. And you guys know I'm not a fan of politics. Um, I don't don't get excited about Obamacare or what, uh, you know, what, Roy Moore running for Senate in Alabama and that sort of thing. <laughs> but but I will say this. I, I know Ron Ron and Carol Paul very, very well. I don't know Rand much. I've met him. Um, you got to hand it to him for making himself relevant again after Trump's victory. Because for a while there, all we were reading is that the libertarian moment's over. And Rand Paul was the most interesting man in politics on Time Magazine's cover just a year ago. Yes. And now everything's Trump, 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 sucking up every bit of media oxygen. And, you know, Rand has quietly and effectively gotten himself back in the mix. And, you know, one of the big differences between Ron Paul and Rand is that a single senator has procedural power in the Senate, wildly beyond what Ron could ever do in the House. Mm. Ron could try to build little coalitions to thwart an amendment that had something really bad in it, let's say. But for the most part, Ron's role in the House was to to use his his the platform for, for spreading libertarianism, mm. whereas Rand can do some, some nuts and bolts things that really do throw a monkey wrench into the NSA, into uh, Obamacare exchanges, that sort of thing. So it's it's very easy for us as ANCAPs to judge him harshly, but, uh, you know, he's in a very different place. And and I think Murray Rothbard would say, look, we believe in a multi-pronged approach. The Mises Institute's doing what it's doing. Rand Paul's doing what he's doing in the Senate, which is a totally different game, totally mm-hmm. different animal. So uh, I, I certainly don't judge him, and, and uh, I, I applaud the way he's reinvented himself a little bit. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else? Um, no. I I just wanted to say thank you for coming on. I've definitely appreciated it. Um, I've learned a lot. I can't wait to look up some of the stuff that you were talking about. Um, again, thank you. It was great meeting you in Orlando, by the way. He talks about you all the time, so I'm <laughs> really happy to finally meet you. Hey, well, thanks, guys. This was fun. I appreciate you having me on. No, thank you. Yeah, yeah th- thank you. It's it's a Saturday, and uh, 
you took a lot of t- <laughs> you took a you took a part of your day off to join us and uh, our viewers and we definitely really really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And if you ta- if right. if you can please uh, say hello to Walter Block for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll look forward to seeing you guys next time in Florida. Thanks so much. Thank right. you. Thanks so much. All right. Yeah. So that was that was uh that was Jeff, Jeff Dice. Jeff Dice, the president of the Mises Institute coming on, which was cool for me. Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah. Guy's very, very smart. We hope everybody out there definitely enjoyed it. Um We have, so we never did our yeah, we never regular thanked Lola, yeah, we and so yeah, we can do that now. I really didn't drink much cattle on this show. Yeah. <laughs> I was more interested in listening this time. Normally when you're talking, I'm like, Yeah, whatever. I'm gonna drink cava. <laughs> I'd get to listen to you all day long anyway, so. Yeah. Once again, we have to thank Low Tide Kava Bar for the kava that we drink during this <laughs> and every show. And thank you, Justin. Uh, we will be seeing you very shortly, I am certain. Shells mm-hmm. up. Bula. Bula. Yeah, and thank you for all the uh, the questions you guys sent in. Um, I did miss a few, but... We were kind of running short on time. I even had my own question that I forgot to ask him about. Yeah, I couldn't believe you didn't ask your own question. Yeah, and there was the elephant in the room that I wanted to mention but forgot to. Um, but it is what it is. It is what it is. It it doesn't matter. It's yeah. so old anyway. It's not even relevant <laughs> in, relevant news. Yeah, it's that's... not current events. It's old events. Yep, yep. So, yeah. If you guys have any questions that you'd like me to pass on uh, or you want us to answer anything, um, just go ahead and send them in to myself, Matt, or just send it in on to the to page. The, to the page, yep. Yep, and uh, we shall do our best to respond. Yes, and please do not forget that on December 2nd, we are going to be having our one-year anniversary show at Grassroots Kava House in downtown St. Pete. Uh, we're going to be doing it upstairs. It's going to be live. We're going to do live audience. We've got guests coming in. We've got uh, – it's it's going to be a great time. Um, so please make time for that. Come on down. It's going to be fun. Uh, Grassroots is, a, in my personal opinion, these – they're not the best kava bar. <laughs> But, you know, they're up there. They're number one, number two, um, after number one. Uh, but, yeah, no, love the guys at Grassroots Kava House, and we definitely appreciate them giving us the opportunity to do our show at their very – it's a gorgeous spot that they have mm-hmm. as well. It is. Um, do you have anything else? No, I am good to go. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you for joining us. Remember, you can follow us at facebook.com backslash muddied waters of freedom on Twitter at muddied underscore waters or on Instagram at muddied waters of freedom. This and every other episode is available at muddiedwatersoffreedom.com under the episodes tab. We did for those of you who did not like our last shirts, I don't know if you know this or not, we got new ones. Hmm. Um, so I will be sporting one of those the next time we come back, which will not be this next week because I will be in Nashville for my good friend Nathaniel Faulkner's wedding. So congratulations to Nathaniel and his new bride, whose name I just blanked on, Wendy. And... <laughs> <clears throat> And uh, so we will be back in two weeks unless we get froggy and decide to do something in the middle of the week mm-hmm. one of these times, which I have no problem with ever. And, uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, so uh, thank you for joining us again. And uh, 
remember where we're going. We don't need roads.